0: Welcome back to the PMHMP Podcast, the definitive podcast for those passionate about mental health throughout every stage of life. Whether you're an aspiring professional or a seasoned expert or someone simply keen on understanding the intricate world of psychiatric care, you're in the right place. I'm Dr. John Rossi, a certified PMHMP nurse educator and lead content creator and instructor at Clarity Education Systems and www.pmhmptesting.com. All right. So I know in the last episode, I said the next time we meet, we would be having a special guest speaker and we would talk about some of the challenges that we have faced as mental health providers. But over the last couple of days and really the last couple of weeks, I've had so many conversations with students and professionals about the different types of family therapies, group therapies and individual therapies and how difficult it can be to differentiate between them and what we need to know specifically for the certification exam. So I thought this would be more important to focus on. So today, we're really going to look at each one of these theories and therapies, talk about their background, their history, some of the creators, and how we can utilize them based on the patient and the diagnoses that are you know, presented in each case. So buckle up. We've got a lot to talk about. I hope you've brought... Plenty of paper and, and pens to take as many notes as you can. Remember, these podcasts are specifically designed to dive deeper into the materials. Those of you that are practicing and studying with us in our review program, you're going to hear a lot of these same topics, but they're going to be very um, you know focused on the exam, what, what you need to know. Understanding that you should already have a a general and basic background on these materials. So, if you don't, if you need to dive a little deeper because you maybe didn't get all of that covered in your program before you graduated, this is where we're going to dive deep and really focus in on the meat and potatoes, if you will, of each one of these theories and therapies moving forward. All right, so without further ado, we'll go ahead and get started. The goal, the objective by the end of this podcast. It's for you to really understand each one of these uh, theories, therapies, how to apply them, and how important they are when creating specific interventions for your patients. Okay, so the first one we're going to start with is individualized therapy, and I know this is a very broad topic. So we will talk about what it is, some of the subcategories, and then we'll break into each one of those subcategories and talk about them uh, in more depth. So individual therapy, it's also known as psychotherapy or counseling. Now, this is a process where individuals work one-on-one with their trained therapist. This can be nurse practitioners, psychiatrists, psychologists, licensed clinical social workers, even nurses. And the real goal here is to explore that patient's feelings, their beliefs and behaviors, and to work through challenging or um, influential memories and identify aspects of their lives that they would like to change. So let's understand a little bit more about the background and history with individualized therapy. We cannot talk about this without discussing Sigmund Freud, so often termed the father of psychotherapy. He really introduced psychoanalysis in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, right? He emphasized the role of unconscious processes and the past experiences in shaping behavior. Then we are introduced to Carl Rogers. Now, he developed client-centered or person-centered therapy in the 1950s focusing on the individual's experience and emphasizing empathy, unconditional positive regard, and congruence. Now, the late 1950s and 60s saw the emergence of cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, developed by Aaron Beck and Albert Ellis, focusing on the identification and modification of maladaptive thought patterns. So you can really start to see some of the patterns that are developing here as it pertains to individualized therapy. So different approaches to individual therapy are grounded in varying theories, and you really need to understand each of these theories as you start to formulate treatment plans and utilize these uh, therapies on your patients. First, we have psychoanalytic theory, and this is where we focus on unconscious processes and unresolved past conflicts. Humanistic theory, this is emphasizing personal growth, self-discovery, and self-actualization. And remember, that's a key word of humanistic, self-actualization. Behavioral theory centers on learned behaviors and emphasizes the role of conditioning. And finally, we have cognitive theory. Now, this concentrates on thoughts and perceptions and how they influence behavior. So each one of these theories are what play into individualized therapy and how we have created them. So different types of individual therapy um, that exist, and we're just going to name a list here, and we won't focus on all of them. Uh, Once we go through, you know, each one of these, I think I've got 10 listed here, uh, do a brief description, and then we're really going to dive into some of them because those are the ones that I think are most likely to show up on your certification exam. So first we have cognitive behavioral therapy. We're all familiar with that one, CBT. Now this really aims to change negative thought patterns and behaviors, right? After that, we have dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT. This is when we target emotional regulation and interpersonal effectiveness, Psychodynamic theory and therapy explores unconscious processes and past experiences. Person-centered therapy focuses on self-exploration and um, uh, self-discovery and self-acceptance. Solution-focused brief therapy really concentrates on finding solutions to to current problems that the patient is having. Existential therapy explores issues of existence and meaning and death. Then we have gestalt therapy. Now, Gestalt really emphasizes personal responsibility and focuses on that individual patient's experience within the present moment, okay? Narrative therapy centers on stories people construct and tell about their lives. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, or EMDR. This is specifically designed to address trauma and, you know, specifically PTSD, and then finally, we have mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And this is when we combine some of those mindfulness strategies and techniques with cognitive therapy in order to prevent uh, relapses in, in diseases and disorders like depression. So that's just a quick 10-point list about some of the individual therapies that are out there. Now, I want to go a little deeper into each one of these, or at least some of these, so that you can really identify the key core concepts, the history of... Um, the creators or the theorists and therapists that are, are known to have um, really made their mark because of these specific therapies and how you can utilize them for whatever particular patient you may have or whatever diagnosis from the DSM-5 that they've received. So let's dive into the first one here it's going to be dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT. Now, this is a type of cognitive behavioral therapy developed by Marsha m linehan okay in the late 1980s so really not that not not too long ago it was originally created uh, to treat individuals with borderline personality disorder and as in fact if you see what therapy goes with dbt or goes with borderline personality disorder you want to go with dbt okay um it also uh, dealt with individuals that had chronic suicidal ideation Uh, But since then, we've adapted it. We use it for all different types of scenarios to treat a variety of mental health conditions, including things like eating disorders, substance use disorders, and depression. So it really is multifaceted. Um, Now, it incorporates behavior therapy, like I said, with cognitive therapy. And then there are some aspects of Zen practice that are incorporated with it um, as well. So that term dialectical refers to the integration of opposites, primarily acceptance and change. In DBT, the clients are taught to accept their experience as it is and then working uh, toward changing their behaviors within those set experiences. Okay, so that's DBT in a nutshell. Just remember mindfulness, uh, things like distress tolerance, emotional regulation, and then interpersonal effectiveness as it pertains to dialectical behavioral therapy. All right, moving on, let's take a look at existential therapy. Now, this is a form of psychotherapy that focuses on exploring issues of existence and freedom, responsibility, isolation, and meaning. Really, it emphasizes that individuality, the human capacity of self awareness, and the freedom to take and make choices. Existential therapy. This therapeutic approach emerged in the mid-20th century and was uh, further developed by prominent psychotherapists like uh, Viktor Frankl, Rollo May, um, Irvin Yalom, and Emily van Derzen. So lots of influential um, players with this particular therapy, and this goes even further back to many of our French counterparts. Um, great therapeutic approach, especially for somebody that really needs to focus on those freedoms, responsibilities, and meaning. Existential therapy is it's really predicated upon the belief that individuals are fundamentally free to choose and to shape their own existence, but that that freedom, it really comes with the responsibility of creating meaning and living authentically. It emphasizes um, some key themes. And so let's talk about some of those key themes within this theory or this therapy. We have death, the inevitable death and its impact on the individual's life and choices. Then we've got isolation and the inherent isolation of individual existence and the desire for connectedness and feeling connected freedom and responsibility the freedom to make choices and the accompanying responsibility that comes with those choices that we make we have meaning the quest for meaning and the purpose for life and then finally anxiety the natural consequences of facing one's existence freedom and limitations, and the natural anxiety that ensues because of those things that we experience just by being human. So the approach to existential therapy is less technique-oriented and more focused on dialogue. Therapists help clients um, explore and clarify their beliefs, confront their freedom, and take responsibility for their actions. Now, it's important to remember that it encourages clients to reflect on life and make meaningful choices. So the application in existential therapy involves clients um, grappling with issues related to life transitions, self-awareness, death, anxiety, existential despair, and the search for meaning in life. It can be especially beneficial for individuals facing existential concerns or those feeling stuck in inauthentic patterns of living, helping them confront their anxieties and making meaningful, authentic choices. All right, so let's move on to the next uh, therapy, which is humanistic therapy. This really emerged in the late 1950s as a reaction to psychoanalysis and behaviorism. It centers on the individual's inherent drive towards self-actualization and creativity. It emphasizes the importance of free will and individual experience and the inherent worth of every person, the worth that each one of us has. So a little bit of history and background. Key figures in the development of humanistic therapy include Abraham Maslow, uh, who conceptualized the hierarchy of needs and the idea of self-actualization, and Carl Rogers, who developed that client-centered and person-centered therapy. Now, humanistic psychology, often referred to as the third force, positioned itself in an alternative, or as an alternative, to psychoanalytic and behavioral approaches emphasizing consciousness, values, and abstract ideals like creativity and self. Okay, so very stylistic in that approach. So humanistic therapy is based on several core principles. First is self-actualization, which that's a key word. Um, You'll definitely want to look for that on your exam if you're trying to find, you know, an answer that has to deal with humanistic therapy, self-actualization the inherent drive within individuals to realize their potential and their capabilities. Then we have holism. So this is the whole person, including the mind, the body, and the spirit. It's integral in understanding the human experience in total. Then we have the individual experience. So personal, subjective experience is the primary indicator of behavior and development. Finally, we have the positive view of humanity. People are inherently good. With the ability to make choices that will ultimately cause a change. So, the different types of humanistic therapy include personal centered therapy or PCT. Again, this is developed by Carl Rogers, focuses on creating comfortable, non judgmental environments to allow a client um, a time and opportunity to reflect, to, to gain self awareness and, and self acceptance. The core conditions for PCT are empathy, unconditional positive regard and congruence. Gestalt therapy, developed by Fritz Perls, um, emphasizes uh, present um, experience, awareness, and integration, uses techniques such as role-playing and confrontation to increase awareness and resolve inner conflicts. Existential therapy blends that humanistic principles with existential philosophy, focuses on themes like freedom and responsibility and death and the meaning of life, right? Things we just talked about. Transactional analysis, now this was developed by Eric Byrne, um, explores the interactions or transactions between individuals and their corresponding social roles and dynamics. And then finally we have transpersonal therapy. This goes beyond an individual self exploring a person's spirituality, their higher consciousness, and human transformation. So these are all types of humanistic therapy. So what is the application for humanistic? Well, humanistic therapy can be particularly beneficial for individuals dealing with issues related to self-esteem, self-acceptance, self-growth, and relationship concerns, right? Um, So it, it suits those who want to explore themselves, understand their feelings and experiences, and strive towards that personal growth and personal fulfillment. Now the approach to humanistic therapy is a generally non-directive and empathetic, allowing the individual to explore and lead the conversation. So it's it's definitely um, that non-directive approach, right? That we just talked about as far as the the provider or the practitioner just strictly adhering to this this you know plan of action. We we want them to explore and to conversate. So the therapist. They provide support, allowing the client and 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 the family members, if for some reason we start to do this within a, a family um, approach, that therapist provide support, allowing them to explore their feelings, their thoughts and behaviors, and then encouraging self-discovery and self-acceptance. So the focus is often on the present moment and the individual's current feelings, their thoughts and their experiences. All right, so humanistic, a lot to um, really consider with that approach, but it really lets the the person, the client participate in their ability to identify who they are, what they're feeling and what they want to accomplish in therapy. All right, so then we move on to interpersonal therapy or IPT. So this is uh, this is very time limited. It's focused, evidence based, um, and we use this a lot of times to treat mood disorders. Right. Um, the main goal of IPT is to improve the quality of a client's interpersonal relationships and their social functioning to help reduce uh, their distress, okay? So a little bit of history. Interpersonal therapy developed in the 1970s by Gerald L. Kelman and Myrna um, M. Wiseman, if I'm getting those names right. Hopefully I am. Again, Texas, Texas twang here. So both of these individuals um, created this for the treatment of depression, okay? It was initially conceived as a brief structured alternative uh, to that long-term approach of psychodynamic therapy. So since its start, since its inception, IPT has been adapted for a variety of mental health uh, conditions and disorders, including anxiety disorders, uh, things like eating disorders, and also mood disorders. All right, so the theory behind IPT is that it's based on the theory that mood and interpersonal relationships are fundamentally interrelated. It it really challenges or it postulates that changes in one area can lead to changes in another, right? So therefore, IPT focuses on addressing current interpersonal conflicts and problems while emphasizing their connection to the client's symptoms. So core principles behind um, IPT are interpersonal relationships, obviously. It's focusing on the quality of interpersonal relationships. Remember, it's very time-limited, so typically consisting of 12 to 16 sessions. It's problem-focused, addresses specific interpersonal problems, and it's, it's really focusing on the here and now, so mainly on current concerns rather than delving into those past experiences or situations. So IPT typically focuses on one of four interpersonal problem areas, and they're also believed to be related to the onset or maintenance of psychological symptoms. So one we have is grief, so focused on dealing with bereavement and loss. Two is role role disputes, really, so addresses conflicts uh, with significant others, which makes sense for the type of, you know, this interpersonal uh, approach to therapy. Then Role transitions, so it helps individuals cope with changes in life circumstances and their roles. And then we have Interpersonal Deficits, so addressing long-standing difficulties in forming and sustaining fulfilling relationships. So the different types and adaptations of IPT, we do have Group IPT, so this is conducted in a group setting, allowing individuals to share their experiences and really support each other within that group. And then we have IPT for Adolescents, or IPTA. This is adapted, obviously, to meet the developmental needs and the concerns of teenagers. So you really want to understand those developmental stages and processes as they pertain to Erickson's and Piaget and whatnot as you're incorporating this IPT therapy for adolescents. Then we have IPT for eating disorders. This is tailored to addressing interpersonal issues related to food and eating. And then finally, we have EPT for postpartum depression, Again, focusing on um, how these new mothers are dealing with depression after childbirth. So therapists use IPT um, primarily uh, with clients to identify which interpersonal problem areas are relevant and to help them develop more adaptive ways of coping with interpersonal difficulties. So the therapist supports the client's understanding and they start to make that link between their mood and the interpersonal experiences that they're having. And in exploring all of this and making changes, they're then starting to work on that interpersonal environment, which is the overall goal of IPT. Now, numerous studies have supported the efficacy for IPT and depression, and it's it really is considered a well-established treatment for depressive disorders. So the effectiveness of IPT has also demonstrated that other mental health conditions um, are also applicable to it. It's Basically, solidifying its place as an impactful therapeutic approach for interpersonal and mood-related challenges. Okay, so now let's move on to EMDR. This is a really fun one. I, th- I think it's got a lot of applicability. Um, you know, in in particular areas of of interest, such as military use for PTSD, as well as in more populated areas where there are a lot of traumatic experiences that go on not to say that it doesn't happen in the rural areas as well but you know we see with mass shootings or uh, circumstances that are happening in these large uh, metropolitan areas but again trauma can happen anywhere at any time so EMDR is one that we can we can turn to so EMDR stands for that eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So it's, it's, a, it's a psychotherapeutic approach, and it um, was developed in, in, in the late 1980s, and it was initially created to treat individuals with trauma, um, which were post-traumatic stress, right? So PTSD. But its, it's application really is far beyond that. Um, it's expanded quite a bit to various other mental health conditions for um, things like anxiety, depression, and even panic disorder. So EMDR was discovered um, by uh, Shapiro uh, when she noticed that eye movement could reduce the intensity of disturbing thoughts. So after experimenting and refining the technique, she she published the first research study um, back in 1989, and the theory behind EMDR is that it's based on adaptive information processing or AIP models, which it's really, you know, it puts out there... it postulates that brain that the brain has an inherent ability to process and to integrate traumatic experiences. But sometimes these experiences can be inadequately processed, right? And they're stored within the memory network inappropriately. So EMDR aims to facilitate the reprocessing of these distressing memories, reducing their impact and then helping those individuals integrate them adaptively into the way that they're thinking, the way that they're behaving, and then to be able to cope with the situation and stressors that are at hand. So we do have to discuss the phases, right? We can't talk about EMDR without talking about the different phases. So EMDR therapy typically occurs in eight phases. So we have history taking and treatment planning. So this is when we're going to gather all the information about the client's history, identifying target memories, and EMDR processing. Then we have preparation, establishing trust and explaining the EMDR process to the client, and then teaching self-soothing techniques. Then we go on to the assessment. So the assessment is used to identify specific components, such as images, negative beliefs, etc., things of that nature, in order to target the memory. Then we're going to desensitize. So we have desensitization. So using bilateral stimulation, usually eye movement, uh to process that memory and reduce its emotional charge. Then we get to installation, now strengthening a positive belief to replace that negative one associated with the memory. Then we have the patient perform a body scan. So this body scan identifies and processes any residual tension or distress that's being felt in the body. At that point, we get to closure. So this is when we return to the client, Um, we help them return back to equilibrium and then we ensure that they are stabilized after the processing is completed. Now, once all of that's done, we're, we're really not through. As clinicians, we have to continue to reevaluate, and that is the last step here, so reevaluation. So assessing the progress and then addressing any remaining distress or related memories. And at any point in time during treatment, if, if there's a disruption in one of those phases, then we have to go back and reinitiate to get to the point where we're closing again after the body scan. So there are some types of EMDR therapy. While standard EMDR therapy approach primarily focuses on those traumatic memories, um, different adaptations have been developed to address various conditions in various uh, populations. So we do have group EMDR therapy. This is modified to be suitable in that group setting. And then attachment-focused EMDR, adapted to treat individuals with attachment traumas and their associated disorders. We also have EMDR for children. So this is tailored obviously and uh, modified in order to make it suitable for children and their way of thinking. And then it's uh, specialized EMDR protocols. These have been developed for specific issues like addiction, phobias, or grief. So you can see how it's really grown over the years and its applicability. So EMDR this therapy has been found to be quite effective um, for a variety of conditions, like we've talked about PTSD, anxiety, depression, panic disorders. Um, it is especially useful when distressing memories are involved. And they've been endorsed by various health organizations for this particular purpose. So definitely endorsed by the WHO or the World Health Organization um, as an effective treatment for PTSD. We use it in the military quite often. It's super effective uh, for those types of traumatic experiences as well. So if you're dealing with uh, patients that, you know, maybe you're in the VA or you're in a heavily uh, veteran-related population, definitely want to consider that as an approach to therapy for trauma. All right, so we've talked about a lot of individualized therapies. We kind of mixed in some group situations there, but for the most part, we focused on just individuals up until this point. So now we want to talk about group therapy. Group therapy involves one or more therapists working with several individuals simultaneously, right? It's in the definition there. So it is a form of psychotherapy that can be used to treat psychological disorders and emotional disorders or difficulties, promoting interpersonal learning, and then offering support. That is the real benefit of group therapy. So the history of group therapy can be traced back to the early 20th century. Uh, we had Dr. Joseph H. Pratt um, is often cre- uh, credited or um, noted as being the initial developer of group therapy. and. They really utilized it to educate individuals about tuberculosis in the early 1900s. So during the 1930s, 1940s, group therapy gained prominence, particularly in the work by the psychotherapist, and I know you know this name, Irvin D. Yalom. So he contributed extensively to this development, outlining the therapeutic factors and principles of group therapy, and we will go over those factors here shortly. So group therapy operates on the premise that interpersonal interactions can provide therapeutic benefits. The group setting allows individuals to explore their thoughts, their feelings, and behaviors in a safe environment, receiving feedback from peers and then offering support from others. So the dynamics and interactions, when we think about it, right, within this group serve as a, it's really a, micro, uh, a microorganism or a mycosm of, of participants in this etern- external relationship environment coming together for this really um, almost visceral and, you know, more than a one-on-one exchange. So it offers them an opportunity to really participate and hear and experience and share in this uh, wonderful environment of therapy as long as the therapist is guiding it appropriately and you know not not sitting back not doing anything but also not dictating everything that happens in the group so there's a, there's a lot of opportunities for learning and change and exchange when we're dealing with groups so types of group therapy uh, include psychoeducational groups This is when we focus on providing information and education about specific issues and disorders. An example would be like a stress management group where we're teaching relaxation techniques. Process-oriented groups. So this is where we focus on experience of being in a group as a mechanism for change, emphasizing self-awareness and interpersonal dynamics. So a good example for this would be a group exploring interpersonal relationships And then really diving into and looking at communication patterns. Then we have support groups. Obviously, these offer emotional support and understanding for individuals facing similar issues or challenges. And in a group setting, um, these individuals, they're able to work with each other in dealing with grief and loss. That's going to be the best example for a support group. Okay, then we have cognitive behavioral groups. These focus on identifying and changing maladaptive thinking patterns and behaviors. An example of this would be a group teaching cognitive restructuring techniques for things like anxiety. Dialectical behavioral therapy, again, individual or groups, so DBT in groups, teaches um, skills in distress tolerance, emotion regulation, interpersonal effectiveness, and mindfulness. So an example of this would be training uh, a training skills group for individuals with borderline personality disorder. All right, then we have psychoanalytic and psychodynamic groups. This explores unconscious processes and patterns that influence behavior and relationships. So an example of this type of group would be a group of individuals that are examining how early experiences impact their current relational patterns. So the approach in group therapy can vary Greatly, And depending on the type of group um, or the theoretical orientation of the therapist, generally speaking, therapists make um, they're going to make and they may take active or facilitative roles. Right. That's going to be their primary role in this situation while encouraging interactions among group members, fostering supportive environments and ultimately facilitating insights and learning. All right, so let's move on. Since we're talking about groups, let's talk about um, Yalom because this is—he was very prominent, um, very prominent psychiatrist and a major proponent of group therapy. Really has established how we're doing groups today. So identified ten therapeutic factors, right, that he believed are the primary agents or um, agents for change in group therapy. These factors are central in Yalom's theory and emphasizing. Um, how individuals can benefit from group therapy and the process of group therapy. So Yalom, what he did was um, he had this body of influential work called The Theory and Practice of Group Psychotherapy in in the 1970s. And he outlined the 10 therapeutic factors as part of his effort to understand uh, the functioning and efficacy of group therapy. Now, his work has been foundational in this field of psychiatry it it provides therapists with a framework to understand and facilitate therapeutic processes within the group setting all right so let's dive into them we're gonna we're gonna roll through these so bear with me Um, universality so this is the realization that one is not alone in the experiences that they're feeling contributing to a sense of shared experience and understanding so that universality of a situation Altruism. So this is the experience of providing support and help to other group members. Really, this fosters a sense of purpose and self-worth. Installation of hope involves observing the progress of others um, within the group and then instilling hope while inspiring um, this belief that improvement is possible. Then we have imparting information. This is the educational aspect of group therapy where participants, they're allowed to gain information and advice about their issues from other group members. Okay, corrective recapitalization and of the primary family group so the group environment can mirror participants um, family dynamics so offering opportunities to identify and alter dysfunctional patterns within these within these family groupings uh, can be super beneficial for correction development and socializing techniques so learning and practicing new social skills within the group this can uh, be applied to external relationships once they leave the environment all right then we have um, Imitating behaviors, so observing and modeling the behavior of the therapist or other group members as a way to learn new ways of thinking and behaving. Okay, number eight, we've got cohesiveness, so the feeling of belonging and a feeling of acceptance within the group. So this is super essential for creating a safe and supportive environment. Okay, number nine, existential factors, so confronting and exploring existential concerns, uh, this, this would include things like death and freedom, isolation, those, those topics that we just talked about at the beginning of this podcast. Um, and then we find meaning within the group context as it relates to these existential concerns. And then number 10, finally, we have catharsis. So catharsis is really that experience of expressing and releasing suppressed emotions within a supportive group environment. So Yalom's therapeutic factors provide a theoretical framework that... Re- Ultimately, it emphasizes the multifaceted nature of therapeutic processes within groups. So they underscore the importance of interactions among group members, the role of the therapist and the group as a whole in facilitating therapeutic change. So these factors are interrelated and they can be presented simultaneously, contributing to the, you know, that rich, complex um, multi-layered experience right of being involved in group therapy they are not exclusive to group therapy however they can be applied and they are applicable in a variety of um, different settings and uh, therapeutic opportunities so definitely we can we can use them in other areas but specifically for the exam we want to make sure that we tie yalam to those uh those those therapeutic approaches in group All right. So, group therapy, it does typically involve several distinct phases. Each one has its own characteristics and challenges that are associated with it. So, these phases are crucial in understanding the development, the dynamics, and the potential for therapy within the group. Uh, Yalom, um, this model identified the following major phases of group development. I think it wasn't just Yalom, though. We have uh, Lesix, Lysix, something like that. Um, This was was also identified as um, a major contributor to these group development phases. So first and foremost, we have forming, right? So the characteristics of forming, this is going to involve members being polite. Uh, They might be a little bit anxious and cautious to share something. The focus is on establishing trust, defining the group's purpose, and then developing a sense of safety and belonging. That all happens in the forming stage. Now, the task involved here is establishing those norms, building rapport, and then clarifying goals and the group expectations. Now, there are some key challenges within forming. Overcoming the initial anxieties and the uncertainties, and then fostering that sense of safety and commitment within the group all fall under phase one of forming. Okay, phase two is gonna be storming and some key characteristics of storming include those conflicts and disagreements that arise as members start expressing their needs and their differences. So there can be resistance, we can have competition, um, it can be polarizing within the group. Now, we want to address conflicts constructively. We want to establish clear communication and reinforce a supportive and respectful environment. That's going to be key within the storming phase. Key challenges are going to be managing those conflicts and then maintaining group cohesiveness and then addressing individual needs and concerns. So once we get through that storming phase, then we can really start to norm. We get into norming, number three. So group, um, the group's going to start developing this cohesiveness and this sense of identity one with another. Members begin to appreciate each other's contributions that are being made, and we really start to see them work collaboratively. Uh, they wanna strength, we want to strengthen those grouped bonds, right? We want to solidify norms and roles, and then we want to encourage that mutual support and understanding. Some challenges associated with norming, however, are balancing conformity and individuality. And then addressing any residual underlying conflicts that may still be causing tension within the group. All right, then we get to performing. So this is where the magic really starts to happen. The group is mature. They're functional. And they're focused on achieving the goal. Members are engaged, they're flexible, and they're supportive of each other, and the group is able to deal with conflicts and challenges effectively. So deepening um, the exploration of individual and group processes is really the major task of performing, facilitating personal growth and insight and working towards the group's therapeutic goals. Major challenges in performing include maintaining momentum, addressing individual and group needs effectively, and then managing any emerging issues or disruptions. Finally, we get to adjourning. So this is when the group focuses on termination and the ending process. Members are gonna to start to reflect on their journey, their achievements that they've made, and um, you know what have they learned? That's all gonna happen during that adjourning phase. Tasks in this area include reviewing the progress that's been made, addressing endings, because that's super important within the adjourning section, and then preparing members for post group life. Challenges associated with the include managing emotions related to endings, ensuring a meaningful conclusion, and then supporting members in transitioning out of the group. All very, very important aspects of the end of group therapy. So understanding these phases, they really help therapists in managing group dynamics, addressing issues effectively, and facilitating the group's progress. So by recognizing the developmental stage of the group, therapists can tailor their interventions uh, to meet the specific needs of each group and really each group's member. Um, And that way we can overcome those challenges, thereby enhancing the overall efficacy and the overall impact of the group therapy. Okay, so now let's go ahead and move on to families. So family systems therapy is based on systems theory. And this really um, states that individuals are best understood within the context of the family system. So the family is viewed as an interconnected system and changes in one part of the system can impact the entire group or system. So we're gonna talk about some key concepts related to family systems therapy. And the first is the system itself. So the family is seen as an organized whole or a system in which elements are interrelated and intertwined and change in one part will affect the whole. Subsystems are within a broader family system concept. There exist smaller subsystems or subgroups, which include marital, parental, or sibling subsystems, each with its own set of rules and roles and responsibilities and sub-boundaries. Then we have to talk about the concept of homeostasis. So families strive for a balance or stability. When a change occurs, as we just talked about, within the system, the system will try to restore its equilibrium, which can sometimes maintain dysfunctional patterns. Then we have boundaries. These are the invisible barriers that regulate contact with others within the family system. Healthy boundaries are clear, yet flexible while unhealthy ones can be rigid and enmeshed. Then we have differentiation of self. So this is um, the degree to which an individual can think and reflect and, and separate him or herself from the emotional system. Higher differentiation implies better emotional regulation and better autonomy. Then we have triangulation. Triangulation occurs when tension between two members Is alleviated by involving a third member, creating a triangle. It can maintain stability, but often at the cost of resolving the actual conflict itself. Then we have circular causality. This refers to the reciprocal reinforcing nature of interconnections and interactions within the family, where each member's behavior is both the cause and the effect of the problem. Generational patterns and transmissions are established. Families pass down patterns or behaviors or roles and emotional processes through generations. And this really affects family functioning and individual development. Then we have something called scaffolding. So this is the support structure provided by the parents to allow children to develop competencies and autonomy progressively. And then finally, we want to talk about attachment. This is the bond and the emotional connection between family members particularly between parents and children, significantly impacts the family dynamics and then the individual development of each family member. So what are the different family therapies? Let's break them down one by one. First, we're going to talk about structural family therapy. So structural family therapy, this is a type of family therapy that was developed in the 60s and 70s, and it's focused on identifying and altering family structure, which is invisible but powerful. And really it is consisting of this habitual ways family members interact with each other. So when we talk about this this therapy, we have to understand the central idea being that families are structures and they're composed of subsystems defined by specific boundaries and are governed by family rules That are dictated by members behaviors and their interactions so the core concepts of this approach or this therapy include having structure so that structure refers to the set of patterns of interaction and the hierarchy within the family it encompasses the subsystems the boundaries and the family itself so subsystems are those smaller units or groups within the family such as parental or sibling subsystems each having its unique rules and roles Now, boundaries are invisible rules that regulate the amount of contact between family members. Um, They can be clear, rigid, diffused, or enmeshed, and this really impacts the level of independence and the level of closeness that we see within these families. Now, we also have the hierarchy. Effective functioning requires a healthy hierarchical structure. Now, usually with parents as leaders or decision-makers, and then the children are as the followers. Now, enmeshment and disengagement, enmeshed families have overly permeable boundaries that lead to lack of independence among its members, while these disengaged families have rigid boundaries leading to isolation. So let's talk about the approach to strategic family therapy. So structural therapists are actively engaged with the family, joining them to observe, to challenge, and to to alter the existing family structure. The goals include strengthening the parental subsystem, modifying dysfunctional patterns, and then establishing appropriate boundaries. Therapists may use techniques such as joining, and joining is just establishing rapport and aligning with the family to gain insight into their dynamics. Um, We can go to boundary setting, right? Helping families establish and maintain appropriate boundaries. The therapist can then do um, enactment, and this is asking family members to demonstrate their interactions And this helps us to observe and to modify real-time exchanges. And then finally, we can use um, and utilize reframing. So reframing provides a new interpretation of the situation in order to change its meaning and then ultimately alter the family's response to it. So structural family therapy, it's really had a profound impact on the field of family psychology and therapy because it highlights the importance of system, systematic, excuse me, um, patterns and structures in understanding and really treating these underlining psychological distresses that exist within the family. So it's demonstrated efficacy in addressing a wide range of family issues and individual psychological problems as well, uh, particularly um, among children and adolescents. It's, it's very helpful. So this model emphasizes um, active engagement and systemic change, continues to influence various therapy modalities, right? And it, it offers this valuable framework um, for working within diverse family systems. Okay, so that's structural. So now let's go into experiential therapy. So experiential therapy, it originated um, from the humanistic psychology movement of the 50s and 60s. This is Carl Rogers, right? Person-centered therapy being one of its foundational influences. Um, We also have Virginia Satir and Fritz Perls uh, that further developed this really... um, unique approach to therapy, if you think about it, because it starts to incorporate gestalt uh, therapy and theory principles. So we start to focus on individual experience, individual awareness, and the here and now interaction. So experiential therapy, it postulates that transformation occurs through lived experiences. It values individual perception and emotional processing, while its main avenues or its main ways of doing this are to understand the change itself. So it emphasizes present moment experience, self-exploration, emotional expression, and then authentic interaction. So again, the principles are the here and now focus, uh, current feelings, current thoughts, current behaviors, rather than experiences that happened in the past or in the future, right? We want to talk about here and now. Authenticity and self-exploration. So this encourages individuals to explore and express their true selves while experiencing honesty in emotion and feeling. Then we have responsibility. Individuals are encouraged to take responsibility for their actions, their experiences, and their own emotional responses. And then finally, we're gonna look at holistic engagement. So this um, really engages the cognitive and emotional and behavioral aspects of an individual often through action-oriented techniques. So these are all principles of experiential therapy. Now, in experiential therapy, the therapists, they're going to use active, engaging, and expressive interactions to help these individuals experience their emotions more fully and become more aware of their inner selves. So techniques are going to include things like role-playing, guided imagery, use of props, art, and music, Um, Other various activities could include emotional expression uh, techniques um, and then finding ways to have self-discovery. So who would benefit from this type of therapy? Um, It's got a wide range of utility um, and for use with various diagnoses. So people with anxiety and depression, trauma, PTSD, substance abuse, eating disorders, relationship issues, and personality disorders. All right, let's go ahead and move on to strategic therapy. So this approach evolved from the Mental Research Institute in Palo Alto, California, and was heavily influenced by the communication theory work of of Gregory um, Bateson and the brief problem-focused therapy model of Milton Erickson. So this theory of strategic therapy is problem-oriented and focused on changing patterns of interaction that maintain the identified issue. It emphasizes the role of family structures and communication in the development and the maintenance of problems. So this approach is typically brief. It's directive um, and it's highly active. The therapist is going to take a proactive role in designing specific concrete strategies or tasks for the family or individual to alter existing patterns and resolve the problem. So principles associated in strategic therapy include problem-focused, by addressing specific behavioral issues and specific symptoms directedness um, so the therapist is going to actively guide and then give tasks to bring out the change change and in interaction patterns this aims to alter the interactions and in then in the communication um, that these family members are having in order to maintain the problem and then paradoxical interventions. This is a big one. So when you're thinking strategic, I want you to remember paradoxical. So paradoxical interventions are sometimes used um, as paradoxical tasks to bring about change. So such, such tasks as um, instructing a client to exaggerate a certain behavior in order to hopefully elicit the opposite reaction and to get them to go to the more healthy response. So strategic therapists assign tasks or behavior changes to disrupt the dysfunctional pattern, right? So, for example, we could do um, prescribing the symptom or reframing perceptions to change the way the family member views the problem. It's common to focus on altering behaviors outside of therapy sessions. And... Sessions might be irregular and vary in length depending on the problem of the nature, the the natural problem of the issue, and then the treatment strategy that's been selected by the therapist. So who's going to benefit from strategic therapy? Um, This can be beneficial for individuals, couples, and families experiencing a lot of issues. So behavioral problems in children, such as addressing specific behaviors and changing family interactions, which can result in behavior modification. Marital relationship conflicts, so altering interaction patterns can help in resolving conflicts, therefore improving the overall relationship through strategy. Mental health disorders, so individuals with conditions like anxiety, depression, um, they can benefit from strategic interventions aimed at modifying specific patterns of behavior and those interactions that they're having. And then finally, substance abuse. This would be a great one for substance abusers as well, um, by targeting behaviors and family dynamics um, in order to support recovery. Okay, next up we're gonna talk about solution-focused therapy. So solution-focused therapy uses the approach um, to really identify positive, future-focused, and goal-oriented changes. So principles associated with solutions therapy involve future focused this emphasizes envisioned futures and problem solutions rather than just the problems themselves then we have a resource based it draws upon the client's strengths their resources and their abilities to construct solutions themselves and then it's brief and it's goal oriented so typically it's a short-term approach centered on the clear and concise goals for the patient So therapists employing this solutions-based therapy, they ask specific types of questions like miracle questions to help the client envision a desirable future and then collaboratively develop strategies in order to achieve that vision. Scaling questions are also utilized to assess progress and to identify small, manageable steps towards those goals. So who's going to benefit from solutions-based? Well, children with behavioral issues. So the positive, goal-oriented nature can be very accessible and engaging for younger clients. Those with mild to moderate mental health conditions, so conditions like anxiety or mild depression, they can also benefit from that focus on solution in order to strengthen helpful techniques and, and um, thinking strategies. This is also beneficial for relationships and families, so the approach can be beneficial in addressing um, specific relational goals and then those specific conflicts that exist between uh, you know, husband and wife, uh, parents and children, or um, significant others. Uh, Substance abuse users. So this is going to focus on specific positive change and can be effective in supporting recovery. And then work-related stress and care changes and career changes. So the solution is going to focus on goal orientation approach, um, which can be helpful in navigating work-related challenges and transitions. All right, so now we're on to narrative family therapy. This is a fun one; it's very engaging. So narrative therapy developed in the 70s and 80s by Michael White. Um, this was an Australian social worker. Uh, we also had David Epstein and a New Zealand, uh, who was a New Zealand family therapist. So this approach it really arose as a part of postmodernist movement, and it it emphasizes this importance of stories that we construct or that people construct in order to make sense of their lives and their identities. So narrative therapy operates on this principle that our identities are shaped by our narratives or our stories. And um, this is all based on our construct, what we tell about our own lives. So these stories are influenced by societal norms, cultural values and personal experiences. Some stories can be limiting, they can be damaging, um, and these type of narratives are what lead to problems. So narrative therapists help individuals to deconstruct and then reauthor these stories. And they do this so that they're more enriching and more, more engaging and more powerful. So the principles associated with narrative therapy include externalization. So problems are viewed as this separate from the person. Um, And this is going to help reduce blame and reduce shame. And then it's going to facilitate a collaborative exploration of the problem story itself. And then we want to, another area is going to be deconstruction and reauthoring. We're going to want to reauthor. So existing problem, saturated narratives are deconstructed in order to understand how they were formed in the first place and how they were maintained. Then we're going to have new narratives and new alternative stories that align better with the individual's values and preferred identity, um, and we're gonna we're gonna do this by co-creation, and then we have dominant narratives. So it explores how broader societal and cultural narratives influence individual stories and can contribute to the problem itself. So the approach to this narrative therapy is uh, therapists are gonna employ narrative um, techniques like externalizing conversations, where the problem is named and then explored. Separate from the entity, and then we reauthor the conversation where new preferred stories are developed. So they also explore the influence of the dominant culture narrative and then help individuals to reset um, and transform these narratives of, of culture when they are oppressive and when they are, um, you know, not helping the patient in their narrative concept. So who's going to benefit? Individuals facing life transitions. Mental health concerns such as anxiety, depression, and trauma, family and relationship um, complications, cultural and identity issues. This is an interesting, right, because it's it places this it places this particular attention for usefulness of individuals really struggling or grappling with issues related to cultural identity and societal norms. Um, So you'll see this in um, cases that are dealing with, uh, you know, very religious families or living in in a highly religious area or an area that is so embedded in this culture that's been a part of their society for generations, but don't really align with what your patient is feeling or thinking. So we can help with that narrative. Um, And then finally, children and adolescents, this is great for them, so young people can benefit by developing more empowering and positive stories about their lives and their experiences, Uh, especially in this day and age with uh, digital narratives and digital storytelling through blogs and YouTube and TikTok. Children are creating narratives that are just not healthy and quite honestly aren't real. So narrative therapy is super effective for children and adolescents, especially in today's environment. Okay, couple of final thoughts here as we, as we end this podcast, because I know this was a lot of information. The hope is you'll go back, re-listen to different sections, and pull out those key terms and words that we used for each one of these uh, specific therapies and theories. But we cannot end without talking about the trans-theoretical theory. This is one of the new topics that was introduced in the April 2023 format changes of the ANCC um, certification exam. So the trans theoretical model also known as TTM, this is um, known as the stages of change model. It was developed in the late 1970s and this model was later refined, so it's, it's been ongoing, and it's been expanded to encompass a wide a variety of behavioral um, situations and changes. So it's really applicable to a lot of different uh, circumstances. So let's talk about the theory and main points behind TTM, or transtheoretical model. So this model proposes that behavior change is a process that occurs in stages, and individuals move through these stages at different rates. So the model, it really integrates strategies and processes from different theories of intervention. Now, the main components of this model include stages of change. So we have pre-contemplation, so no intention intention to change um, a specific behavior in the foreseeable future. So that's that pre-contemplation. Then we have contemplation. This is acknowledging the problem and considering change. That leads to the next stage of preparation so intending to take an action that leads to action so the next phase the next stage here so action is implementing specific changes then we enter into a maintenance stage and in this stage we sustain the new behavior and prevent relapse and then we have termination so this the new behavior is well established there is no um, temptation to return to the old behavior, and we have now terminated the stages. We also have what's called process of change. So the process of change um, within this model identifies ten processes, which are activities that people use to progress through the stages, such as consciousness raising, self re- re- reevaluation, excuse me, and environmental re- reevaluation. Then we have decisional balance, so weighing the pros and cons of modifying the behavior. And then finally, self-efficacy. So self-efficacy is that confidence in the ones or the patient's ability to, to change and to overcome those challenges. So interventions based on the trans-theoretical model, they assess the individual's current stage of change and apply strategies appropriate to the stage in order to facilitate movement. To the next stage so just to to review here we want to we want to go from pre contemplation to contemplation to preparation to action to maintenance and then finally to termination so who's going to benefit from this trans theoretical model Uh, like I said it's very versatile and so it can be super beneficial in individuals that are seeking a wide change of behavior this can include substance use disorders to help motivating and sustaining recovery related behavior change Health-related behaviors, um, so those looking to adopt healthier habits, such as diet, exercise, or, you know, uh, medication adherence would be a good one. Mental health conditions, um, depression and anxiety. This is going to help Bain uh, create and maintain healthier coping mechanisms. And then stress management, really good for stress management. So this is useful for individuals looking to adopt healthier stress strategies. All right. Moving on, I said there was a couple more. So, this one is the Lewin's change theory. Again, one of the new ones added um, in April of 2023. So, Lewin's change theory. So, Kurt Lewin, this is a um, psychologist um, and one of the pioneers of social psychology. And he developed Lewin's change theory in the early 20th century. And it's regarded, um, and he is regarded as the father of social psychology. And this change theory is foundational in both organizational psychology and change management. And the theory really questions that change is a three-stage process. And those stages include the first one, which is unfreezing. So unfreezing is the initial phase where recognition of the need for change occurs. So it's going to involve disrupting the equilibria or the status quo of the situation Overcoming resistance to change and preparing the individual or the group or organization. This can be used in various levels um, for upcoming changes or transitions. So then we move into the next stage. This is the changing or moving. So this stage involves the actual implementation of the change where new attitudes, new values, um, new behaviors are developed. Now within this stage, um, we're going to see evolving and learning new skills. Um, exploring new understandings, and then adopting new values. Then we get to refreezing. So at this final stage, we want these new attitudes and values and behaviors to be solidified or frozen, right, and become the new status quo. So this stage is crucial in sustaining the change over time. So for Lewin's change theory, you need to remember unfreezing, changing, moving, and refreezing. So Lewin's model is often applied to organizational settings um, to guide change management processes. It's going to emphasize importance of preparation and buy-in. That's going to be super important with Lewin's change theory, this buy-in before a change can occur or before we actually have support for this change, and then in order to establish that guidance that's needed to get through the change. And so once that happens, um, we're able to reinforce after the change occurs. But we have to go through those steps in order for it to be effective. All right, so who benefits from this? Again, organizational changes, so companies that are undergoing structural or cultural changes, um, educational institutions, so schools and universities. uh, They can use this Lewin's change model to implement educational reforms and administrative changes. Healthcare settings for sure. So healthcare providers they can utilize this um, model to implement new policies to um, you know change procedures or practices within the within the healthcare setting, and then individual behavior change can occur using Lewin's model as well. So um, like I said, it's it's typically seen in more organizational or larger healthcare settings, but we can use this theory to. To have professional and personal development changes at an individual level, and then will ultimately lead to behavior changes. So it's very effective. It's um, definitely one that uh, I think that you're going to see on the exam moving forward. It's it's you know become kind of this darling of the theory world, and so you really want to understand Lewin's. And I think it's important that we do utilize it because it's how we can change. Larger systems as a whole, which then ultimately trickles down to the individual and can change all of us. So it's it's a, a very effective modality and useful therapy and theory. Okay, we went through a lot of stuff today. Um, hopefully, it was beneficial for you in organizing what therapies and theories you need to know. I don't expect you to memorize it all in one setting. This is a, a podcast that you'll probably want to go back to. If anything please write down which each, each one of these uh, different theories and therapies are. That way you start to create a full list. And then on that list, just start picking out keywords, you know, paradoxical, um, organizational structures, things like that that you will be able to memorize and associate with each specific strategy and theory. Ultimately, I think this will help you calm down a little bit when it comes to theories and therapy so that you aren't feeling overwhelmed in these questions um, that, quite honestly, many students are missing. But it's all laid out there in front of you. Really, uh, this was an in-depth look, and if you're in the program, I want you to go watch the seminar. I believe it's seminar uh, three or four, and that's going to help solidify key terms and topics and then that should give you a nice well-rounded review. Um, And in some cases, this may be the first time you're hearing about a lot of these depending on your program that you graduated from. But uh, this will set you up for success in the uh, ANCC certification exam. Again, I'm Dr. Rossi for Clarity Education Systems, also known as www.pmhnptesting.com. We would love for you to share this information with others um, that may be studying for the exam or maybe soon graduating from their program. We are really a holistic approach to studying. We cover everything and we utilize books and videos and flashcards and practice exams. Um, But ultimately, we just want you to feel engaged in the material, not so that you can just pass an exam, but so that you feel empowered and that you feel ready to go out and start your new career as a PMHMP and really make the change that's needed in our healthcare system specifically within the mental health care system. Thank you for listening. I look forward to uh, being with you in seminar and then talking with you again at our next podcast. Have a great day, night, morning, whatever it may be. We'll see you later. Bye-bye.